What is happening, everybody? Welcome to another Wind Up podcast. I'm your host, Mike Anderson of MTGA Wines, and it is the second week of March, March 8th. And we are going to be getting into, I guess, a continuation of last week's episode because this is something that I think requires a little bit more discussion, a little bit more honest opinion and conversation. And that's something that we really didn't get into in the last episode. Um, If you're going to continue following the show, you'll know that typically the second week of each month, I typically dive into a more of a bit of an opinion piece and kind of my own thoughts on like state of the union of wine industry, things that we do, techniques, all that good stuff. And since we focused on additives in wine to kick off this month, I wanted to dive a little bit further into it with just my own two cents on it. Because I think that show can, you know, it might have been a little, some folks might have been a little perturbed by it. Now you have to kind of like, oh my god, consider what's in your wine. And I want to try and dial that back a little bit and talk very frankly about it and kind of where I think the industry as a whole stands in regards to it. And I want to start this off by making a bit of a comparison because I think that wine, to a certain extent, gets put up on this pedestal. And with that, there's this assumption that it is grapes, a winemaker's guiding hand, maybe some oak barrels of some sort, time, and then it's bottled. And it's a very simple, very romantic process. I mean, it's obviously very, very romanticized. And it's why I think wine can be kind of overtly intimidating. Now, if you kind of dial that back and say, well, wine is just a consumer good. It's something that I just enjoy and I consume as a person. How is it any different realistically than any other beverage or food product realistically? And I think that's where this wine additive conversation really needs to head. Because I was hungover a couple of days ago, and I'm running a bunch of errands. I'm dropping off a bunch of you know packages for shipping and all this other stuff. And I stop at a convenience store to fill up with gas, and I'm like, you know what? I just need a sparkling water and some hot Cheetos. Because damn it, hot Cheetos are like my vice. If there's one junk food I have to have like at least once a month, it's hot Cheetos. I could, if I wanted to, cut them out entirely, knowing full well that hot Cheetos do not provide any real nutritional content. They're just kind of spicy corn puffs that are damn delicious. However, if I look on the back of that package, and I've done this hundreds of times with the amount of hot Cheetos I've consumed, it's probably an embarrassing amount of hot Cheetos I've eaten in my lifetime. But you look at the back of that package and the ingredients involved and you're like, damn, I don't even know what half of these things are, much less I can't pronounce them. And if all this goes into making this tiny little red puff, then there's got to be a lot of processing and stuff and kind of, for lack of a better word, fuckery that goes on to create those things and make them delicious, right? So... Why can't the same thing apply to wine and people just not worry about it? And I think that's a really odd way to look at it as just you you distill down these two things, Cheetos and wine, to just consumer products as what they are. And 
are you willing to eat them or drink them or aren't you? Or maybe take, let's just take beverages. Let's take any soda. Name a brand name soda and wine. Let's not just pick on Cheetos because Cheetos are delicious. Take Coca-Cola. Take Pepsi. Take, you know, any, take Mountain Dew, whatever. Take any fast food or chain restaurant that has like recipes and processing dialed in for their burgers or tacos or whatever to taste a specific way. It's the science of the food industry and the beverage industry. And why is wine put up on this pedestal? And I think the reason is because you go into like the archives of history, wine is romanticized. It's, it's the beverage of kings and queens. And you have these people that are, you know, wine experts like sommeliers that have to explain certain things to the lay people because there's so much going on in a bottle of wine and it's so special and historic that it demands your respect when the reality is it's fermented grape juice so i ask it again why is it treated differently than any other consumer good when it comes to a food or a beverage and i think the reason that it is treated differently is that one wine has this uncanny knack of teleporting you something whether it's to the country that that wine is from or to maybe the last time you enjoyed a great wine. You say you're drinking a bottle of wine from Napa and you don't live in Napa. You live across the country, across the world somewhere, and you immediately, you can reminisce about, you remember that trip we were on? We traveled through Northern California. We got to Napa. We met with these great wineries. We had great food, great meals. We had the best time. And all of a sudden, you're teleported back to these beautiful, emotional moments that, frankly, that you give me any can of soda or fast food taco, that's not taking me there. <laughs> like the last time I had a Crunchwrap Supreme was the last time I was really hungover, which wasn't necessarily the best moment, right? So wine kind of has this ability to draw out these really great emotions and moments in our lives. And I think that's why it ends up on this pedestal and why people, including myself, are kind of shocked and awed at why do you need more than like grapes that make great wine? But again... It's another just consumer product of a different beverage industry. Of course, there's going to be a lot of manufacturing and work that goes into making wines taste a specific way. So if you go back to that episode last week about wine additives, you know, we talk about, hey, what's up, Freddie? I know, buddy. Of course, you come in right as we're recording a show. Yeah. So needy, that guy. And... You go back to that episode, and we kind of just hit the bullet points of, oh, yeah, we can add yeast for the fermentation. Oh, yeah, we can add nutrients to that yeast if it's potentially maybe not a healthy environment and they need a little jump start. We can add things like acid or tannin. We can add color. We can add certain flavors and characteristics through some of these concentrates and through some of the, these extracts. And you can also filter things using different filtration practices, which we didn't really touch on. We'll get into that in another episode, but you can cross flow wines. You can put wines through reverse osmosis. You can carbon filter. You can use just a pad filter, very similar to like a coffee filter kind of thing. Um, you can use things like uh, Velcrin to fine your wines. You can use all kinds of stabilizing agents and enzymes and, and things. 
how is that any different than any other beverage or food? And the reality is that it's not. So I don't want to sit here and be the hypocrite that says wine is different. It needs to be treated differently because the reality is that it's not. And there are certain lines in the sand that myself as a winemaker, I don't want to cross. I simply do not. There are things I don't want to do to my wine because I don't want to over manipulate my wines. I don't want to manufacture my wines. And I find something pure and honest in saying I'm using grapes, I'm using yeast, maybe some nutrients if the yeast need it. And then I'm using oak barrels and thyme and a very low dose of sulfites to make my wines. That being said, there are exceptions, right? I know, Freddie, there's exceptions, right? He said, like, I can't believe there's exceptions. And this happened just this last harvest. And I think this is kind of a, a great practical example of, you know, how some of us end up deciding to work with some of these products. So a great example of one of these exceptions happened this last harvest. We picked our Cabernet probably later in the season than what many people would have expected given the heat spikes and rain and like all this craziness that happened. So we picked it relatively late because it needed it. And what a lot of us within the industry were talking about through this harvest season were how high pH levels were and how high uh, VA was, volatile acidity, acidity was in our wines. And the reason that we were talking about that was because if you have high VA, it means you're looking, you're looking at wines that are literally starting to trend towards becoming vinegar. And if you've spent tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars on fruit to create wine, and that is potentially going bad, you have to do something. You cannot risk losing that money. Because if I had done that and that wine went bad, I, MTGA would shut down. I would be out of business because I can't foot the bill for spending that much money and getting nothing for it. There's just no way about it. So what happened? The good news is you can, you can adjust things. And that's where we use a little bit of tartaric acid, uh, which we mentioned in that previous podcast, a derivative of uh, one of the major acid groups that or it's not even derivative, it is one of the major acid groups that's found in wine grapes because you have tartaric acid, you have malic acid, and small amounts of citric acid. So we use that first one, tartaric acid, and we add that back into the wine in a certain volume, a fairly low dose for what it was. I think we ended up doing right around one gram per liter when it was all said and done. And it was enough to knock down the pH level and stabilize that wine so that it had less of a chance of spoiling because the higher the pH level, the more unstable your wine typically is also means typically the more sulfites you would need to use to make sure that wine stayed stable and preserved in the long term so in order to in essence potentially save that cabernet that we brought in i did an addition it's the first time in nearly 15 years of winemaking that i've had to do that because typically the pH levels when they come in at our wine, you know, for when I harvest are relatively low and I don't have to do these additions. But this was a year and a moment where do I risk my wine going bad and being out tens of thousands of dollars or do I just bite the bullet and make sure that that doesn't happen? And I chose the latter because as a small business, I had to. There's no two ways around it. I needed to. 
do that for the survival of MTGA. And I would make that choice over again, no problem. Now, I think where I start to draw the line is when you're looking for what are considered just kind of specific numbers in your winemaking. Because I have know a handful of winemakers who are looking for like a specific number, right? They're saying, hey, our tannins need to be this, or our phenolics need to be this, the pH needs to be that, the acidity needs to be that. Here's where, <clears throat> excuse me, here's where these things need to lie. And they'll start to tinker with a lot of these adjustments and whether it's tartaric acid or adding tannin or removing tannin or, you know, whatever the case may be, because they want to make sure that they're hitting these certain check marks, which is, okay, cool. It's a stylistic consideration. Have at it. Go for it. More power to you. But at that point, for me personally, that's when the artistry of winemaking starts to erode away. And you're simply relying on the lab to doctor up your wine and make it what you, quote unquote, need it to be. I know, Freddie, it's crazy. It's crazy, right? This happens. And I don't have a problem with it. I just don't. You know, this is something that I think we talk about at our tasting table at the winery and with folks around the country is that we try and just make honest wines that are grapes and nothing else. I think that's the honest to goodness truth for many people. And for many, you make exceptions like we did this harvest because we don't want our wines to go bad, right? We don't want them to spoil before we can even have a chance to bottle them, right? That's You have to make some of those calls sometimes, and it might you have to suck up your pride and just go with it. But that's one thing. When you start overly manipulating wine and processing it in a way that it becomes, in essence, a shell of itself, that's where I start to ha take issue with it. And that doesn't mean that, that they're going to make a bad wine. It doesn't mean that wine's going to be subpar. It doesn't mean that it's going to be somehow inferior. It's just going to be different. And I think that's just what we need to accept. Now, we do talk a lot about this in particular, and I'll go back to the hot Cheeto analogy, is that when I finished that bag of hot Cheetos a couple of days ago, I didn't feel too great afterwards. I don't know what I was expecting to feel, probably just something other than hungover. <laughs> but I know full well that when I crush a bag of hot Cheetos, I'm not looking to feel great and energized afterwards. It's the same thing like eating fast food. Like, it's delicious, damn it, but man, you don't feel good afterwards. You feel kind of like a sloth. You're just like, oh, God, that was delicious. But now I'm just I'm done. Right. As opposed to having like a fresh green salad or something with like chicken, with like grilled chicken in it. You're like, OK, like I feel good. This feels good. That felt healthy. My body is agreeing with this. So and I think that's just part of it. I think that's part of the conversation is that we as consumers, not just you know me as a winemaker, but as a wine consumer myself, you have to make those judgment calls. Like, what are you okay with consuming? And I can't sit here and say, hey, my wines are made as low intervention as I deem fit, minus, you know, intense situations where I have to make exceptions because it's going to cause huge problems. But I'm also not going to overly process or manufacture my wines. 
I can't say no to the processing and manufacturing and then still enjoy hot Cheetos. Like for me, I would be a hypocrite. It, 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 that would be the case for me, is that I can't sit here on like some high horse and say these additives and extracts and concentrates are bad because they're not. They just aren't. Hot take for the day. They're not. It's just different. Because if I'm against those extracts and additives and things in wine, why am I eating hot Cheetos? Right? Why, why, am, okay, why am, okay, am I okay eating fast food every once in a while? Why am I, am I not going down to the local farmer's market every week and buying what I need from farmers locally and just eating off the land that's near me from organic produce? Because that's the way to do it. If you're really going to you know, dig your heels in on this, it means you're going the organic route. And, and I still, this is something that I, a little bit of a tangent, but if you're really hell-bent on making sure that there's as little processing as possible, organic is what you got to shoot for. Because that means it's non-GMO. It means, you know, you're not using herbicides and pesticides and things. Organic products are what you shop for. So run your ass down to Whole Foods and buy organic or whatever whatever stores near you that sells organic produce. Go to your local farmer's market and support them. If you're really hell-bent on doing this, you got to shop for stuff that's organically certified, number one, or you know the producer personally, whether it's vegetables or wine or beef or whatever, and know that they're abiding by you know, organic practices, which are very stringent and it's actually very very expensive to get that certification which is why many people will practice it but they won't get the certification that that is a thing so it's worth getting to know people and saying hey if you practice this great because we know the certification is expensive and it's a chore and realistically just to slap a sticker on your product it's not really worth it unless you got boku bucks to make it happen that's my own two cents on it but shopping organic is the way to go if you're really going to be a stickler about this because there's nothing else that really regulates, you know, these industries like the organic sticker does, realistically. Even non-GMO. I mean, the non-GMO project is actually pretty good. But if you're buying organic, that means it's non-GMO. So you kind of like kill two birds with one stone there, realistically. Uh, yeah, I, I, I really don't have a problem with the wine industry or winemakers using any of the products that we discussed in the episode earlier this week or earlier this month. And if any of you went to the Anartis website that we had listed amongst the links uh, there and the resources for that episode, you'll see, I mean, there's a ton of different things that we can use. Many of them are vegan. Many of them are organic. Many of them uh, are don't have any allergens associated with them. Like they're really well-made products that, yeah, it means you're fining and kind of processing your wine a little bit more, but realistically, if you're going to do it, at least these are high-quality products that aren't artificial. Like, you're talking about stuff that is, you know, naturally occurring and being adapted to use within the wine industry. And, yes, there's processing involved, which means it's no longer necessarily uh, organic, but at least it's a high quality product. And, and Anardis in particular is a, a company that is you know all over the world. They do a lot of research. They're, as far as I'm concerned, a very trustworthy source for some of these things. And if I'm gonna have to 
employ anything, they're probably the person I'm going to first. This is not an ad. I'm not sponsored by them. I just like how they do business. Um, they haven't proven me wrong yet, which is very, very nice. So, yeah, I just, it, it's kind of, it's it's interesting because I think, you know, we, you know, we small producers that are out here, we tend to, you know, kind of talk a little bit of shit about the big guys and all oh, they over process and manufacture. They're adding mega purple all the time. They're just adding tannin and things. And, you know, uh, there is that part of me that's like, ah, it's just, it's just, that's just chemistry. That's just the science. Like it's not the art form anymore, but I still respect those winemakers greatly because they're doing something that is actually very, very impressive. And to use another analogy, um, you look at Budweiser. It's arguably the best beer in the world because no matter where you're drinking it, it is identical, in theory, to what you're getting out of St. Louis. It, it's, it's the amazing amount of consistency of that beer. Is that it's, it's, it's outrageous. It's so goddamn impressive. But... <laughs> You know, you just, you know, but you don't think of Budweiser as like this necessarily super high quality beer. You're like, oh yeah, here's this great, you know, American brand. Oh, I guess they're half owned by Heineken now, right? So half American owned brand um, that, uh, you know, is doing the great job consistency wise. But I mean, that means there's a lot of processing that goes into making that beer. Like anyone remember the... This is when like the craft beer scene was really, really kicking off, really going hard. And Budweiser came out with like beer made the hard way. You can keep your pumpkin spice beer. You know, we've been brewing beer the hard way forever. That was when I was like, oh, the big guys are shaking their boots a little bit. They see market share dipping, you know, because now they're worried about it. They're worried about it. They're taking note and they're kind of taking their jabs at the craft beer industry now on like a national advertising level. That was, it was an interesting moment in, in kind of beverage, you know, marketing wars kind of thing. Um, so, you know, it, there is something to be said about those mass production guys. And, and when you're making tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of cases of something, it's impressive. I don't, I don't care who you are. It's impressive. And at a certain point, with consumerism the way it is and the popularity of fast food and junk foods, it's like, man, it's no surprise that heavily processed, slightly sweet things, especially in the wine industry, people don't have a problem with it nine times out of 10. But it's weird when we start discussing it because, again, wine is so romanticized and people just think, oh, it's grapes and winemakers ferment it and it's beautiful and it's this artistic product. And the reality is that for many people, it's not. It's just another alcoholic beverage that you can use to take the edge off a long day. And they're not worried about, many of us aren't worried about that. If I were really worried about it, I wouldn't, again, would not have had that bag of hot Cheetos a couple days ago. I'm going to keep going back to that example because it's just, you, you make exceptions and you rationalize things about what you're willing to put into your body. And probably nine times out of 10, if you were to ask me, I would say I'm very conscientious of it. I try to, you know, eat locally. I try to know where my food's coming from. I try to support and buy produce from companies that I trust and that I know. I try to buy organic when I can and when I can afford to. 
because let's face it, some of that organic certified stuff is expensive, let's be honest. And I, I pay a huge amount of attention to it. I really do. But there are always exceptions. And I think that is okay because you just stick with the all things in moderation mentality. I'm not crushing hot Cheetos every single day. It's once a month just to remind myself that I love these little devils, but I feel like garbage after I eat them. So once a month is basically all I need. I've been trying to dial it back more. <laughs> and with wine, I think you have to take the same mentality. And if you're really, really worried about it, you need to get to know who you're buying your wine from. This is the A number one most important thing that I think anyone can take away from this episode is that if you're really concerned about this stuff, you need to get to know who you're buying your products from and wine particularly because many of us don't have an organic certification. Many of us, it's just, it's very sparse information on the bottle. Again, there are only those nine things we talked about that we have to label on our wines. We don't need to list ingredients. We don't need to list how it was processed. We don't need to list any of that. So it is really up to, unfortunately, you, the consumer to come out and be like, all right, what's really going on here? And what do I need to know? And, you know, when I tell the story of adding that tartaric acid, this last harvest into our Cabernet, I have no problem being transparent. I really don't. If people want to know more about, you know, what I have done to my wines, I'm happy to share that information. What yeasts I use, what barrels I use, all the techniques that go into it. And especially if there's something I've added to it to have some sort of effect. And in the case of this last harvest, with adjusting the acidity in that Cabernet and reducing the pH level, it's the first time in nearly 15 years I've had to do anything. Thank goodness, because I don't want to cross that line. And the only reason I did is because it was at risk of spoiling. And I can't afford to take that blow. I'd be out of business, like I mentioned. I'd be out of business tomorrow if that were the case. So at a certain point, you got to protect what you're doing from the business side of it. But then when it comes to you and deciding whether or not you're going to buy that Cabernet, I hope that you understand where I'm coming from and what realistically making that addition means to the wine, which is the reality. It affects you not at all. This is not something that is going to have any sort of adverse effect to the wine itself, much less the consumers that are going to be enjoying it. And I think that's just, that's just the reality. And it's, it's, it, I'm not going to lie. It's scary for me to share some of this because this is the stuff that winemakers simply don't talk about. It's the stuff that the wine industry simply does not talk about. People try and keep this stuff under lock and key because they're scared of sharing this kind of information with people. So I understand why, because they're afraid of losing market share and sales and all these other things, I'm of the opinion that an informed consumer is a more powerful consumer, and damn it, you have the right to know what you're consuming. That's how I feel. Which is why I mentioned in the last show as well that, you know, the kind of lack of regulation around labeling is, is a bone to pick that I have. Because there can be so much manipulation and so many other things that are added to wines that I feel as though that's worth telling people. But liquor lobbies and those that decide, you know, the labeling laws in this great country are 
fairly powerful and they command a high price tag to be influenced. That's my own little bit of cynicism, but let's face it, that's the reality. Um, so uh, realistically, I, I don't think that there's any two ways around it. Additives in wine are going to be something that are continually used, you know, throughout the industry. It's just the way it is. And the most important thing that us as consumers can do is get to know the products we're buying, who we're buying them from, how they make those wines specifically, and make our purchasing decisions based on that. The tough part is that there are going to be a lot of places that are not going to be forthcoming with that kind of information. Because probably nine times out of 10, you're going to end up on the phone with a customer service rep who frankly has no idea what's going on in the cellar. They probably have a general idea of the winemaking process, but not necessarily the ins and outs of what into what went into making that wine. And that's no fault of their own. That's not their job. It's the winemaker, winemaker and the cellar team's job to know that. So it's going to be tough information to track down. But I'm hoping that... You know, for me personally, very selfishly, that if I'm forthcoming with that information, that it starts to signal some sort of change that, hey, it's OK to talk about this stuff. It's not that big of a deal, because if people like me are still going to the convenience store and eating hot Cheetos, you probably don't need to be worried about sharing how you're processing your wine. I really don't think it's that big of a deal. In my overarching opinion on overarching, 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 arcing, arching, I don't know. I'm going to go with arcing because I'm pretty sure it's the other one. Overarching opinion on these additives is that they're fine. I really don't care one way or the other whether or not people use them. Will it affect my decision on whether or not I buy that wine? Absolutely, especially depending on what they're using. Uh, but that's because I have a certain amount of knowledge from my time within the wine industry and making wine that I kind of know the things that are that worry me and I know the things that don't. If someone says, oh, we did a little tartaric ad or, oh, we you know did some egg white fining, those things don't bother me. If someone says, hey, we used Velcrin, a pink flag pops up in my head and goes, okay, like this stuff is, okay, got it. And that's just for me personally. That that does not mean that that should be what you do. That does not mean that should, because, I mean, we talked about Velcrin in, in the former show. It's used in all kinds of beverages from, I think, Gatorade to orange juice to all kinds of things. I mean, let's, you know, it's just kind of the, it's it's a, been a processing agent in the beverage industry since the late 80s. Like, it, it's all over the place. It's not just wine. But there are certain things that I'm like, you know what, all right, that's not necessarily a cause for concern, but if, you know... Had I known that was being used, that would affect my purchasing decision for me personally. So I think that's what we as individuals really have to do when it comes to the overall consumption of wine. And I think this is no different than the consumption of any other beverage or any other food from any other company or restaurant or producer, is that you need to decide for yourself where that line in the sand is and when you cross it, if you cross it at all. I think it's that simple. 
that the onus is on the consumer. And if you are truly against consuming something for any reason, then you don't put your dollars towards it. Because, and I think it, this is kind of thing that many people do. It's like, oh, well, I mean, so I don't give this fast food chain 12 bucks today. I mean, they're still making so much money. What's the difference of me not spending $12? So I'll just buy it anyway. Like you kind of rationalize it. Like it's, a, it's this fascinating thing of the, you know, a diffusion of like responsibility, right? Where if there are enough people doing something, you kind of assume someone's going to take care of it and it never, ever does and nothing ever changes. Um, it's a great uh, sociological concept, the diffusion of responsibility, um, which stemmed from this case in, I think it was New York City. This is a total tangent, but worth talking about. It, it, this case of a woman who was, I think, being killed, like like stabbed to death or something in, a, in like an alleyway in New York City. And, you know, people roll up their windows, they, they look around, they see this lady getting attacked, and there's a bunch of people that are watching this attack happen. And no one calls the cops. No one calls the police. And they're like, but all these people saw this terrible thing happen. Why did nobody do anything? And it was because everyone there assumed, oh, someone else, like someone else saw it first. So they got it. And the diffusion, the responsibility diffused amongst the group so that, in essence, nobody did anything. So, I, you know, never underestimate the power of one person. Because if you say, hey, I'm never eating at this restaurant again, or if I'm never supporting this company again for X, Y, Z, that grassroots level of kind of marketing and information is more powerful than you give it credit. It really, really is. And it's something that we as consumers, I think, kind of just ignore because the responsibility is diffused. You know, there, there are certain things that I know now today, whether it's just consumer goods like a jacket or a watch or a water bottle or whatever. There are certain companies that I specifically try to shop from because they have the same kind of moral compass and things that I agree with and that I support. And there are a lot of companies that I no longer support because they no longer hold dear the same values that I do. They're willing to sacrifice more things for profits rather than quality and the good of their employees in a lot of situations. So I'm not going to name any names, but I think we can all think of some pretty decent examples of that. So I think realistically, when it comes to, you know, additives and anything and the production of any consumer good and, and wine is for sure included in that, that we need to take a step back and understand a couple of things. And that is that this is not uncommon, number one. Two, it's up to us, the consumer, to make an informed purchasing decision and if we can't make an informed decision, that should probably tell you something about the product you're trying to purchase. And three, understand that where we put our dollars speaks volumes as to what we support and actually care about. If you don't actually care about how wine is made, you just want it to taste good, more power to you. 
that, no harm, no foul. I get it. I totally get it. That does not bother me in the slightest. That is totally up to you. When someone says they like a certain producer, and I know full well that producer doctors up their wines to hell and back, you know, in my inner monologue gets going, for sure. It does. But I don't hold it against that person. It's up to them. They've decided what they like, what they enjoy, and realistically, kind of what matters to them. And I'm not going to fault them for that. As snooty as I can be when it comes to wine and how it's made and how I want to do things, I understand full well that my opinion on how to make wine differs from everybody else out there. We may agree on certain things. We may disagree on other things. But it's such a subjective decision. And if you're trying to achieve a certain goal with the wines you're making, there's going to be a certain order of operations. Whether you lean more on the art, whether you lean more on the science, whether you use some of these additives, whether you don't. And I think that that is, it's, it's a personal decision through and through. I hope that the first episode this month in wine additives and kind of my take on realistically why they're not that big of a deal helps. I'm sure it complicated things more than I wanted it to. But this is something that it's a hot topic. It's something that there's really not an ace in the hole answer to figuring it out and how to identify wines that are heavily processed and those that aren't. There just isn't. I mean, typically you can always rely, you can somewhat rely on the fact that if it's mass produced, yeah, there's probably going to be more things going on. And if it's more of a craft boutique mom and pop type place, it's likely there's less stuff going on. But even that can be untrue. So the best advice, and I can never reiterate it enough is get to know who you're buying from and the products you're buying and what you're supporting. And from there, decide where you're putting your dollars. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. We are going to be back next week. This is going to be our first live tasting event. We'll be streaming it live through YouTube. We're getting everything all set up and ready to go. We'll be right here uh, on in the uh, home office command center. Uh, I'm still going to work on picking the theme of what wines and kind of region we want to focus on. But for anyone that wants to tune in, we'll be announcing that uh, through YouTube and our social media channels uh, in the coming days. Uh, so that if you are so interested, you can go to your local wine shop, uh, local uh, liquor store, whatever the case may be, and try and track down some of these wines uh, and taste them along with us. Uh, hopefully meant to be a little bit more educational and just give you a kind of a good, just solid, honest opinion. I'm still going to try and strong arm the HBIC, my better half, Brittany, into blind tasting me on a wine so you can see how much a fool I am when it comes to actually describing and identifying what a wine is so until then we'll see you next time thank you so so much for tuning in be sure to like subscribe uh, don't forget if you want to be included in our end of the month q a leave your questions down below in the comments section uh, i'll be cherry picking through those throughout the year uh, to address them as we continue to release episodes uh, for that q a at the end of every month thank you all so much we'll catch you later